podcast is part of the Pod Syndicate family. For more criminally compelling shows, articles, and conversations, head to wearepodsyndicate.com. Shame that he won't keep, but it's summer and we're running out of eyes. Hello everybody and welcome to the Rewatch Project with Hannah and Mike. I am Mike and with me as always is Hannah. How are you this evening? I'm well, thank you. Just finishing up a long long three day weekend. Yes, ready for the kids to go back to school tomorrow. And for me to be confused about what day of the week it is for, uh, for my the rest husband of the week. to go back to work as well. Overstaying my welcome, I understand completely. Um, but anyway, I think we've got a pretty packed show this evening. We are going to be, as listeners of the previous episode, we'll know we are going to take a brief inter-season break of our coverage of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's between Season 2 and Season 3. We'll be starting up again shortly. The, Call it our S.H.I.E.L.D. sorbet. Our S.H.I.E.L.D. sorbet, that's a good way of putting it. We're going to be covering a short show, namely the HBO 2019 series Watchmen, just as a as a, as a bit of a palate cleanser, I guess. They are nine one-hour episodes. Nine one-hour episodes, so we're going to be covering that. Before we get into talking about Watchmen now, I just want to do a little bit of quick housekeeping. Uh, I'm just aware of the fact that maybe uh, we will have some first-time listeners, because it's mm-hmm. a new show. Yep. Yeah, so uh, we are part of the Pod Syndicate network of podcasts and bloggers and writers and content creators i guess i hate that term but that's what it is uh, and you can find us over at wearepodsyndicate.com there's other podcasts including my other show chin stroker versus punter but other mainly film and tv shows such as entertainment landfill his film her movie the iron sequel and film bastards so uh, yeah go and check all of those out that's wearepodsyndicate.com and also we um here at the rewatch project can be reached either via Twitter and Instagram, where we are at rewatchproj, that's P R O J, mm-hmm. or you can email us at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, um, before you get into the episode that we're covering tonight, Hannah, though, I thought maybe we could just do a little bit of context for this show in general. I don't want to get into too much of the behind the scenes stuff because that could be found better and in more detail elsewhere and that's and that's not our show our show is really more just about our um, reactions to the episodes i yeah. guess um but what if anything um just so we can kind of contextualize for the listeners where we're coming from is your uh experience or history or relationship with this franchise we've both seen this before but um tell us a little bit about how what your uh, experience and knowledge of watchmen as a franchises okay so i was completely oblivious to this and like i had heard when the film came out but i didn't think it was something that i would connect with so when it came out i didn't rush to the cinema to watch it it <clears> wasn't something i was into and and that's a fault on my part i think for not looking into it a bit more to see what it was but when the tv series came out we were living in our old house and i remember i'd gone to bed Mike said he was going to stay up and watch one of the episodes. He'd he'd read Watchmen, he'd seen the film, wanted to watch the TV show. And he watched one episode and came upstairs and said, you will love this, so I'm going to hold off. And I'm not always right when I say that. (laughs) I don't have an unblemished hand. And it wasn't just a case of, okay, darling, I'm going to watch that tomorrow. It took until after we moved. Yeah. Um, because we watched it in this house, yeah. So it, I watched I watched the movie, the ultimate director's cut 
version of the movie for the first time this year, the beginning of this year. Yeah, prior to watching the show. Prior to watching the out. show. But um, yeah, Mike said to me, I need to I needed to watch the film before I watched the TV series so that I was familiar with the backstory and the world and the characters and how things had got to the place where the TV series begins. Mm-hmm. And we just devoured the show in... I think we watched an episode a night for nine nights. Mm. It, it was just, let's watch another, let's watch another. Yeah. I just absolutely loved it. And Regina King was amazing. And I've been really keen to rewatch the TV series. And we've rewatched the film, but we haven't rewatched the TV series yet because we thought that it would be a good thing to cover on the podcast. So that's my history. Yeah. Okay. What about yours? A little bit more sort of history for me but by, I'm by no means uh, an expert and this is one of those those franchises particularly the comic book where it has a very devout cult following mm. um, so you know if you are part of that devout cult following and you're listening to this I apologise in advance uh, oh I'm, me too you know, because I'm going to be so pedestrian in yes, the things I say. Yeah, so I want to kind of get that caveat out of the way that this is our show is about our reactions. And it's the same with Agents of Shield that we're covering. Hmm. Um I, We're not saying that we know everything about it. My experience was I remember in the late eighties when Watchmen came out, I was really into my main things were I was really into movies and I was really into alternative music. Yeah. And Watchmen, a lot of its imagery and its iconography bled into other areas of pop culture mm. so i mean just it's probably worth mentioning that the, the watchman was a it was a um 12 part i believe comic book series written by alan moore with art by dave gibbons uh alan moore very eccentric british writer who worked for like 2000 ad uh and worked for dc who published this as well and watchman came about when dc bought the back catalog of this small comic publisher that had gone under so they inherited all of their characters and alan moore liked the idea of doing something sort of subversive with those characters mm. in the end that didn't happen they said look no we don't want you to do go crazy we'd rather you create your own but that was the genesis the idea of like what would happen with superheroes if it was the real world and if they were told they couldn't be superheroes anymore yeah and he came up with the, and, the, and the, the comic book series came out in the late 80s and the idea of it was that it was this alternative history where superheroes had been around since the 1940s and the 1950s which is when really when they became popular in comic books as well and how that affected history so Watergate never happened for example mm. America won the Vietnam War there was history branched off and central to the comic book was the, the contemporaneous Cold War. Mm. And it was a very popular comic book at the time. And it was part of this resurgence in comic books of quite subversive. You had people like Neil Gaiman writing Sandman. You had uh, comics like The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Around this time, the Tim Burton Batman film came out. So, uh, and that was a much darker view. We, people, when people thought of Batman, they thought of like the Adam West show before. Mm. So there was this whole shift in the culture towards subversion in comic books and that bled into other art forms like i always remember people wearing the yellow smiley face badge yeah people like goths and people who were into alternative music i went part to of lots of i went, i we, there was at least three dress-up parties i went to where there was 
at least one doc- no one doctor. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, not new. I was going to ask actually. Yeah, 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 no, wearing wearing a tuxedo. Yeah, yeah. I was always aware of it. I didn't actually read it though until around the time that the Zack Snyder film was announced. Mm. So in the mid two thousand, I think that would have been about two thousand nine. I think. I'm pretty sure it was 09. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the things I was always familiar with. I knew all the characters. I knew the gist of it. But the comic book itself, is it's, it's a very striking piece of work, both in its monthly editions. You know, like the every... You've got the very eye-catching typography, you know, the mm. yellow watchman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of the imagery, like, for example, the, the yellow smiley face badge with the blood dripping off it and the doomsday clock in Rorschach's face. And... The way that the comic's laid out is all the pages are like nine panels. It's mm. very uniform and regimented, yeah. yeah. And I think, and the only reason I want to mention that, and I don't want to get into the show yet, really, obviously, until I watched it, but the show kind of televisionifies that a little yeah. bit. But the film itself, I mean, w- one of the reasons why we mention read the comic book or watch the film is that the film, Apart from one one big change, and I'll assume, I'll assume that people have seen the film here, mm. is very you know slavishly sincere to the source material, mm. uh, particularly the ultimate cut, which is like four hours and twenty minutes. I mean, it's a very very long film, but it doesn't feel like four hours and twenty minutes. It's just a long story. It's just. But it's great. It's got good pacing. I almost feel like the perfect way of releasing that film would be to do what Tarantino did with uh, The Hateful Eight yeah. for Netflix, would be to kind of retroactively miniseries it. I mean, just in a very broad sense, um, and we'll get back to your history in a second, but I sort of feel like us talking about Watchmen, I hope that I'll provide a context to people who maybe have thought it was too you'd have to know too much impenetrable yeah i always thought that because i hadn't read comic books that i wouldn't get it you weren't in the club yeah a bit like going into an independent record store when you want something that that was exactly my experience when i read the comic book because i was expecting this impenetrable tome and part of its reputation is the fact that you know every issue ends with four or five pages of supplementary material mm. which you don't actually need to write so and that's things like um facsimile police reports and chapters from like one of the characters in the original uh, one like the original night owl mm. like the older one yeah um he one of the plot devices in in the original watchman in the film of the tv series is that they get shut down by the government and one of them writes a tell-all biography Mm. In the TV series, you know, that 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 gets referenced again. And some of the comic books have like there's chapters of that scattered throughout the book right. as well. So it's this very dense piece of world building. And and um Alan Moore said really he didn't actually care that much about the story of Watchmen. He said to him, the story, the plot was just a MacGuffin. And for him, it was an exercise in character and world building. Mm. That's why it's perfect that they've done it. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning is Alan Moore has disowned every single film and TV version of everything of his that's ever been adapted. Right. And he said he will always do that out of hand. 
Um, he said that he wrote Why? the quiet books. He just said it's a different medium and he doesn't think that you should adapt to other people's work. He's a bit of a lunatic. I mean, he's a wizard mm. he's in real life, you know. He's a very interesting guy. Um, he's very nice about it. Like, he's mm. got a, he's a lovely... He almost sounds a bit like, um, when you hear him interviewed, it's like, he sounds like Hagrid. Mm. He's this real kind of like West Country kind of soft-spoken beardy yeah. guy. Um, but he's just like, look... I don't want people to think that I'm endorsing these films. So you'll see, his name isn't on this all, on the TV series, on the film. It says, based on Watchmen, artwork by Dave Gibbons. So Dave Gibbons is the only person who gets any credit on, same with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen well, and all I of hope, his other... I hope that he gets compensated, though. He just says he doesn't want to be associated with with anything, any film adaptation of anything. Okay. He's done. And it's been a rule since day one. And there's a bit, we'll probably get to this later on, maybe a week where we haven't got as much to talk about. But Damon Lindelof, actually wrote a letter to him like uh, about the, about the show um and an open letter to the fans sort of explaining why he was doing it and how why he hoped alan moore would give it a try and all that and i'll, yeah. I'll well i'll get back to this and talk about that little it's an interesting little story there yeah. as it goes along but anyway just to sort of go back to it so I, I i read the comic book before the film and loved it i saw the film and loved it and people have to remember that this is before the boys this hmm. is before kick-ass you know and th- they all feed into it yeah yeah so th- just it's it's before Logan and Deadpool. Um, they've the never boys been, especially. I think it, it is directly because yeah. Watchmen exists. Well, the, the comic the comic book of the boys was influenced by the comic book of Watchmen. Yeah. Um. But the but the interesting thing is that this was the first R rated superhero film, mm. and just that was amazing. I remember seeing this and just thinking walking out of it and just thinking I can't believe they fucking did that. Mm. Whereas like now in this age of like you know. Ryan Reynolds quipping whilst putting, you know, gunshots through people's skulls as Deadpool mm. is just an everyday thing. But yeah. this was so subversive, and we've and this was prior, this was the same year as Iron Man. So it's mm. funny this came out the same year that the great, the Silver Age of the superhero movie began as well. Mm. So the film came out and, and it, it did okay, but it was an R-rated film. It wasn't a known property, you know, it wasn't Batman. So it kind of came and went. And then what happened was. HBO, who I think are owned by Warner Brothers, who own DC and who made the film, had wanted to do a, a series of Watchmen for a while. And they actually approached Zack Snyder mm. initially, and he wasn't interested. And then eventually they courted Damon Lindelof, and he came on. Damon Lindelof, of course, you know, very controversial figure because he, he was like the head writer on Lost. Um, he worked a lot of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films, and he was generally regarded as, you know, one of the J.J. Abrams sort of mystery box did he work on French? Uh, yes. Hmm. Yeah, you know, great ideas man, but can't end a story to save his life kind of guy. Yeah. That started to change when he... Because he'd never had his own show. Hmm. He'd always been brought on by J.J. Abrams. Someone else's stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and it's funny, the first thing he ever did was... His first ever TV gig was he... Was, remember the TV series Nash Bridges? Yeah. With Don Johnson, who's in, yeah, yeah. Who's in this. Yeah. That's an interesting... I've only just made that connection in my mind. But basically, he, he... The first time he ever actually created his own show was a show called The Leftovers. And... Oh, we watched the pilot. Yeah, thing. and that was a very... It's actually now regarded as one of the best TV shows of the last 20 years. Really? It's very highly recommended. And it was just as that show was, was being finished that it was announced he was going to do Watchmen. So it was announced whilst he was riding this wave of incredible goodwill. Mm. And one last thing I just want to mention sort of contextually before we get into the actual episode is it's really interesting that the idea was this was going to be an ongoing show. 
Yeah. That not one a year. You know how like HBO and all mm. of, you know the, those prestige TV networks yeah. are. They'll do one every couple of years. But around the time they aired the seventh or eighth episode, Lindelof announced that he was leaving, leaving the show, and everyone was like, "What the fuck? Everyone's loving this. What's going on?" And basically, what he said was, "He's like, look, I've realised I've told my story. Mm. He's like, that's it. Mm. He's like, I- I'm happy for." HBO to continue making the show without me. Mm. And he he even even really tried to push me. He said, I love the idea of HBO every couple of years getting a completely different group of creatives to come on and do their their, their vision, like Mm. Fargo, of that. But HBO pushed back and basically said, we won't do it without him. Mm. So there's this weird thing going on. And then HBO reclassified the show as a limited series, which is like, you know, a one-off, like... um, you know, essentially like the modern equivalent of a miniseries after the show, like when it was released on Blu-ray, because originally it was that they were like, HBO have new ongoing series, Watchmen. Mm. When it was released on Blu-ray, it was HBO presents a limited series, Watchmen. So basically where we are now is Lindelof still saying they should do more. They've Mm. got my blessing to do more. He's saying, I don't have any other stories to tell, but I'd come and do another season if I did. If I got mm. one, I'd do mm. it. He's like, but I'm not going to just turn up for work with a blank piece of paper and go, right, I've got to do another one of these now. And um, good on him, because yeah. if, you, if you don't have a story to tell, don't pull something out of your well, ass. The, what, the subtext of what he's saying, and he didn't say this, because Lindelof is a pretty, he's quite a down-to-earth humble, he's quite a funny guy. Mm. And he, I get the feeling that he didn't realise how good this was. Mm. I think he finished editing it and was like, ooh, fuck, that's... I don't think I can top that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think there was an element of that. So my feeling is is that, that there'll be more at some yeah. point in some form or another. I'm sure there um, will be. When, when and who, I don't know, but that's where it is. So, um, But hopefully, hopefully this rewatch will have a good diversity of Mike who knows... Far more about, but still by no means an expert. No, but you know far more about the world, the background, the comic book. You know you do than me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, Um, and I'm coming into it like not as a newbie because I have watched it and I've loved it. um, But I am very much. I I have not been in this world. I, you know, for me, I thought this movie was not aimed at me when it first came out so perhaps if there are people out there listening to this who thought oh, I really you know that kind of passed me by or if it sounded very yeah, hop hard, on the train, hard yeah. comic book and not not really for me or whatever give it a go because I think you will be so surprised oh, at what? the the greatness of storytelling the visual style just the world building that goes on, it is immersive. Yeah, and and one of the reasons why I think this is a good rewatch project fodder is that the way um, the story reveals itself quite quite reluctantly. Yeah. And I think that going back and watching it from the beginning, knowing everything mm. is going to be, oh, be it's going to be a completely different experience. Yeah. Um, but what I will say about the film, uh, or the, I mean, my advice is read the comic book. It's great. But it's big, and it will take you a or while. Or if you don't want to do um, a comic book, watch the watch film. Watch the film. But what I would say is, my advice is always watch the extended version. But I'll be honest, you could watch the short theatrical two-hour version, and that's enough. You'll okay. you'll, you'll get it as long as you'll 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 know everything you need to know. I mean, maybe all, all you need to do is is know the world. Yeah, my my, I think the ideal world way for a noob to do it is to watch the theatrical version of the film, watch a series. 
and then watch the ultimate edition of the film mm. at the end. Because if you're you enough, see, I, I disagree with that. Given that I was a noob, I'm really, really pleased that that Did I. Did you wa- watch the ultimate edition first, yeah. the four hour version yes. with all the animated stuff in it as yep. well? Oh, okay. We watched the yeah. full on. No, but I just realised that some people might be turned off by that and just not watch yeah. it at all. No, you know? no, that's true, and and that's valid. Um, I I'm just very much a person who, when they go into something, if if there's a nod to something, it's nice to know what that nod is towards. Yeah, and I'm sure in the theatrical stuff there are nods that are left out. Yeah. Just purely from the length of the film. Yeah, I mean, from the, if you watch the ultimate edition of the film, you, I mean, you haven't read the comic book because it's a different medium, obviously, but from mm. an informational perspective, you've got it all. One thing I will say, though, for people who are watching the film is that there's, um, there's one big difference is that um, at the end of the film, a character sets off a atomic explosion. Yeah. In the comic book, he releases what appears to be a giant a psychic alien squid mm. on the city. It's the latter that the TV series goes on. Yeah. So if you do watch the film, just imagine that the giant explosion is actually a giant alien squid. That will become clear when you watch, even from the first episode of yeah, the show. Yeah, that was something that Mike had to just disclose to me before I watched the first yeah. episode. Because and they do, it was they do be actually confusing. get into that in the show. But they get into it pretty late, and I think mm. the problem is you don't want to be watching this with a with a bit of FOMO going on. No, you know, no, you need to know that up front. Yeah, but beyond yeah. that, just chuck the movie on or read the comic book, and then come and watch this. One last thing I just want to mention. Actually, no, I'll save that for the episode because that could be a bit of a spoiler. So, should we should we hit pause, watch it, and then yes, come back? Absolutely. Uh, and what we'll do is um, we will be. No spoiler. What I will say is that we're going to assume from here on out that anybody listening to this has seen the film or read the comic book. Yes, absolutely. So spoilers for those are open season. Beyond that, what we'll do is we'll be we'll have no spoilers for any episode after episode one. So Hannah, tell us which episode we're we watching tonight. Uh, what's it called and who was who are the key creatives? Okay, so we are watching. Episode one, title is It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice. The synopsis says, Angela investigates the attempted murder of a fellow officer. The lord of a country estate receives an anniversary gift from his loyal servants. It is directed by Nicole Castle and written by, I think basically just written by Damon Lindelof. Um, Nicole Castle is known for Watchmen, The Woodsman, The Killing. She's done lots of, like, she did some episodes of The Americans. She did two episodes of The Leftovers, so there's her Lindelof connection. It's so funny, when um, listeners who are joining us for the first time now might not know, but when we covered Angels of S.H.I.E.L.D., most of the directors covered other networky shows whereas yeah. this is it's all other prestige shows isn't it like yeah. so cable kind of so she's done I think there's an episode of three pounds cold case the closer suits the killing better call Saul, the following rectify american crime vinyl leftovers the americans claws westworld castle rock and what's interesting as well is i will mention here that this episode is written by damon lindelof every up every other episode is written by damon lindelof and a collaborator writer and what's interesting is at his insistence um 50 of the writing room 
are is African American, mm-hmm. and fifty percent of all of the key creatives are female. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say anything here, but I think the reasons for that will become quite obvious when you start seeing what the show's about. Yeah. But um, yeah, should we hit pause and get into it? Absolutely. Okay. Cool. This podcast you're listening to, pretty good, isn't it? Only problem is, it's about halfway through. Pretty soon, it'll be over. And then what are you going to do? Well, if you're a fan of this show, why not head over to wearepodsyndicate.com and subscribe to our brand new feed, Pod Syndicate The Bonus Shows. Every week, your hosts from Beyond the Neon, Chinstroker vs. Punter, Entertainment Landfill, Film Bastards, His Film, Her Movie, and What's On Tap will be dropping bonus shows right onto that feed. These shows might be collaborations and crossovers, or they might be archive episodes, interviews, one-offs, and other treats from across the Pod Syndicate network. So, prepare yourself for the inevitable disappointment of this Pod Syndicate show ending by heading to wearepodsyndicate.com and clicking on The Bonus Shows. We now return you to your regularly scheduled Pod Syndicate podcast. Okay, so we have just finished watching episode one of season one of Watchmen. Uh, namely the episode It's Summer and We Are Running Out of Ice. Um, Hannah, as is tradition, uh, what were your initial thoughts of upon rewatch of this first episode of season one of Watchmen? I am so pleased to be watching this again. Um, it's it's just such compelling TV. Um, it's a hard watch because there are so many prescient things in it um, even more so than when it aired. Yeah. Like, because it's only been two years since I mean, they made it. You think about um, 2020 with um, George Floyd and COVID and just, you know, so many things happened. The attempted coup in America. Yeah. Um, just... <laughs> It's almost like psychic TV, really. Well, it's it funny that I mean, beforehand. yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's crazy that something so recent um, can already feel like it was um, sensing things that were bubbling up. I mean, deeply upsetting watching all the footage at the start because the. Um, the bombing of Tulsa in 1921 is is real. It's mm. not made up for TV. That's something that actually happened. And I mean, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk a little bit more. When we talk about the episode, but amazingly, before that episode of Watchmen aired, it was a little known. Mm. Um, I mean, it was it was a hundred years, almost. You know. Exactly, and I think that was why... Well, it's 100 years this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's one of those things, it's one of those... And I don't want to just say America, because, you know, we've all, we've oh, all done our bit. everywhere, yeah. But, you know, this idea that um, slavery uh, and all of the things that came after it are kind of our original sin, mm. you know? Um, and it's... It's never been reckoned with, ever, just, you know? It's it's just sickening to see it and know that people of the same colour as you have done that 
to, yeah. to other people. And it's funny, we talk a lot on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, and this is doing the same thing in a weird way, in a different but similar way, mm. um, this whole allegorical like myth thing. Mm. And I think it's interesting because I said I wasn't going to go behind the scenes too much, and we will, we will get into the play-by-play of the episode, but I think that this is just such an overriding thing, particularly in at the very beginning and the very end of this, sto- of this story, but is that the original Watchmen, and I was very careful to sort of plant this seed a little bit in the introduction, the key political, politico-social conversation at the time when the original Watchmen came out was the Cold War. Mm. So Lindelof said that when he was planning this show and he knew he wanted to be contemporary he said there was he wanted he was like okay well what's the modern equivalent of that and he said it had to be race yeah you know if you're looking at okay the idea of watchman is that it has the zeitgeist at the center of the story informing everything else Mm. the zeitgeist in 19 you know 84 or 5 when Alan Moore wrote the original one, yeah. of course, was was the Cold War, and but more specifically, the fear uh, global thermonuclear war. Yeah, clearly in two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and nineteen, when Damon Lindelof and his staff wrote this show, um, it would be almost I can't remember the exact word he said, but it was something along the lines of he said it, it would be, and I know that he he spoke about his discomfort as a white man writing this, but he just said it would just be sinful for it not to be that. Yeah. Like, it would have to, it would just, if he didn't do it because he was scared of being a white man writing about this stuff, he couldn't explain that to people Mm. why he didn't, you know, and I think that that's... Well, that's um, just uh, using his white privilege to avoid talking about it if he did avoid talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing that uh, lots of black activists have said and things I've seen is... Being uncomfortable is good because um, it means that you're having the hard conversations that need to be need to be discussed. Well, it's like they say that the feminism is a male issue, for example. Yeah. You know, that really they can actually have use their power. And I think that there's an element of if you're worried that you're going to get accused of cultural appropriation and you don't use your voice as, let's be honest, in the case of Damon Lindelof, a powerful white producer who mm. can go to HBO and say, I want to do Watchmen and be given it. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's too many black creatives, although an increasing amount, mm. thankfully, but who could do that? And I think that for him to use that in this way is ultimately a positive thing. But I can see how it could be you could be worried about doing that and it might be good for us to preface this with we by no means know the ins and outs of everything to do with specifically us history and us oh, black yeah. history Fuck, I, I don't know so, i don't know anything about british history and i come but from I mean, there we are no doubt going to make some mistakes and say some things that are potentially wrong or inflammatory or whatever but know that that is absolutely not our intention and any anyone who can correct us mm. if we do get something wrong is absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, we're willing to learn. I mean, yeah. the other thing is, well, I mean, you know, just to let you off the hook a little bit here, Hannah, uh, we live in a world where 
the massacre of an entire town um, is only known about because of a TV show. Yeah. So I know, but I think it's worth saying. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, mean, I'm from New Zealand, so you know we have our history with with Maori and Treaty of Waitangi and all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, you talk about that comfort, that sort of outside of comfort zones. Generally speaking, it's only the white people who tend to have that discomfort. I mean, like I, I for example, I'm doing some Maori courses at my work uh, around history and around language and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And the first thing that you're told is don't worry about getting shit wrong. The fact that you're here and mm. trying is enough. Yeah. And if the fact that you've got, I don't know, a thick Birmingham accent, which isn't very mm. compatible with that, you know, yeah. it's, it's be vulnerable, that's, you know? Yeah, that's, um, that's not the point. Try and learn as best as they can. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to things with Maori, you're talking about another language. Yeah. Um, so there's an extra complexity to yeah. the conversation. Yeah, we're not just talking about cultural things. No. Uh, the other thing as well is... Um, have you, are you, are you yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Okay. Um, as far as rewatching this as well, is that this is quintessential rewatch project material in the mm. sense that, and we, I think we spoke about this beforehand, is the, the how dense, uh, how like there's, there's barely um, a frame wasted from I a world building perspective. How much happened in the first episode? And not even from a story perspective, but just like posters on mm. the walls yeah. and little bits of radio mm. and it's like every single fiber of this thing is world it's building meaningful you know mm. and that's the great thing about rewatching things is that the first time you watch something oh you miss so much of it well you're you're a detective mm. whereas the second time you watch something you're an aestheticist a true crime podcast <laughs> yeah that's what you um, so I think the big thing I got out of this and this is actually the third time I've seen this episode because obviously we've watched it I, I watched, watched it the and then stopped yeah. yeah the other thing as well that I just really before we we get into the specifics is just how cinematic mm. it is yeah you know I mean there's moments where you know you could be watching a Quentin Tarantino film or a Christopher Nolan film. Very you know. much the start of it, especially, is, is very Tarantino. It's like the the way the title comes up at the very yeah. beginning in the cinema. Or, and there's something very yeah. specifically about the Don Johnson character that feels, he feels like he's straight out of a Tarantino film. I mean, it's amazing he hasn't been in a Tarantino he, he ha- I was going to say the same thing, but then I realised he, he was in Django. I feel like he could have played, easily played the Kurt Russell role in... Um, Death Proof. In Hateful Eight. Oh, hateful late, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah. Like, I, I would love to see Don Johnson star in a Tarantino Western. Mm. That shit would work real well. Yeah. The couple of moments that really specifically felt very Tarantino-esque to me. And I don't mean Tarantino-esque in the sense of, um, like, shitty 90s movies, like, you know, like um, uh, Swordfish or, uh, you know, Killing Zoe or anything like that. It was There was a couple of moments. There was the bit where the boy was hiding in the back of the car and the bullet holes appeared. Yeah. There was the bit where Don Johnson's walking down the corridor and the camera's behind him and, like, the back of his hat is filling the screen. Yep, yep, yep. And the bit where he's sitting, Don Johnson's sitting in his office with uh, Angela and she's like, I've got someone in the boot of my car. Yeah. 
it's like that exchange felt like it was out Very of Kill Bill or no. something. Yeah. Um, and for me, that like I agree with those moments. And the only one I would add is um, the little boy backlit in the cinema with the title of the episode coming up behind yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Very when, Tarantino. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I like... Uh, the other thing is, as well, is... Uh, and this is something that I don't feel like I'm equipped to explain very well because I don't have, like, the sort of... The, the training, as it were. And this is something that I, maybe I'll I'll um, be able to refine my understanding of as it goes off. But there's something that Watchmen manages to do in all media, uh, in the film, in the comic book, and in this series. And I'm not... I can't quite know how to articulate it. I kind of... I feel it, but I can't explain it. And I feel like it's something almost to do with like typography or typesetting or something around that. Because in the comics, you've I got you've got the well. This is why I'm I'm sort of bringing it up. Is that mm. in the comic book, you've got very angular. The covers are very deliberate, and the way and the way they that they go on a grid. They go yeah. on a grid, but also the actual cover artwork as well, and the way that it uses shapes and graphics and colors. This show does that as well. Like, it's not really a spoiler to say that every episode starts with the yellow Watchmen logo, mm. but it's presented in a different way depending on the, the theme of the episode. Yeah. Um, and there's something about the way that the shots, the symmetry of the shots, the way that things are presented that echoes that, that echoes this kind of... Um, Almost like I re- it's really hard to explain, but it, the use of music as well is part of that. But I, there's, think, there's a very, I think there's a very comic book aesthetic to it, and that means. Do you know what and, I'm driving at, though? Yeah, that means in my mind, like it adheres to, like you say about the nine square structure. Yeah. Um, I I think that that bleeds over into this. Like there are structured shapes of shots and ways that they move from one shot to the other yeah yeah that's part of it for sure Um, and and you know i suppose it's the tv equivalent to treating it as a comic book because you don't have panels on tv shows so you have to if you want to create that feeling you have to do it a different way and i think part of the one part of the ways that you can do it in tv shows sorry to interrupt you but one of the ways is is when i know this is jumping ahead a bit but it's when um, Regina King's character is walking along that wall to her bakery with all the murals. The mural, it's kind of like a like a comic book spread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd you read, know? you read left to right. You are, yeah, yeah. Well, you're reading the shit as she goes. Yeah, like yeah. it's it's a way of getting the information in. It's without, like you're, you're like, scanning in the same way that yeah, you would scan a text. Exactly. And. The other thing as well is I think one of the ways that you achieve that in um, moving art is through recurring visual motifs. Mm. Um, And I don't want to get into this too much because I don't want to spoiler things, but the use of eggs Mm. um, in this episode is something. And keep, keep keep your eyes open for eggs. I, I, I don't know what it means, but there's something going on Can with I eggs just in this. Can I say, like, um, how much you have stroked your chin? Oh, it's because I haven't shaved for a couple of days. I know, so. but you, like, you your other podcast is called Chin Stroker <laughs> Hunter. You are being such a chin stroker at the moment, <laughs> like a literal chin stroker. 
it's it's just making me laugh a bit. Well, I suppose you have to. It's an audio mm. show, so you you, yeah, you yeah. need to uh, assist these things along. Yeah. So, but and I think that's part of it as well. And just l- l- things as well, like the um, you know, like the use of yellow. Yellow is a color that you don't see very often visually represented. I mean, the in. fact that she does uh, the yolks as the smiley face. Yeah. It's adhering back to the movie, the iconography, straight yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. there's yeah. no. There's no delay with that. It's very much like you could watch the movie, pick this up, and and you're in the same world. There's no. Well, that's the thing as e- well. Even though even though it's a different time frame, you are in that world. Because I know a lot of people. Um, well, I don't know them, but I, I saw a lot of people on the internet responded really badly to the show initially because they were like, "Well, this is really? a Watchman." They were like, "What the fuck is this?" They're like, where's Where's Rorschach? Where's the comedian? Where's any? And there's there's blinking. You miss the references but to them. I mean, them. the comedian died at the start of Watchmen. But but that's why I feel, you know, I think I think Alan Moore would like this if he gave mm. it because I think he would respect the fact that it's not. You can't accuse this show of pandering. No, definitely you know, like not. If you if if all you knew of Watchmen, I mean, this is kind of your experience, was you'd watched the film. And then you went into this, you'd be like, well, what what the fuck? You know, I mean, apart from the fact that they're set in the same world. Mm. And I remember when I first started watching it initially, I was like, well, is that it? Is is the only connection going to be that this is a world where the events of Watchmen happened 30 years ago? Um, and it kind so, of is. But there's so more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but but the, the, the silly thing is, was, is A, well, is that, is that a bad thing? Mm. You know? Um, and... I just think that in this age of um, franchises and sequels and pandering, this, and I think you get this from the first episode as well, this is one of those that's done for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, it's like you, it's a, like it's, it's almost like a thematic sequel. It's a, it's a piece of art in a different medium to the comic book that does something that feels the same now Mm. in some ways that's one of the reasons why it reminds me a lot i remember saying this when i first watched it of the twin peaks the return Mm. in the way that that wasn't trying to be the show no it was kind of about the show and about nostalgia and about how you can't go home again you know and it did its own thing and was fun and entertaining but also kind of challenged you on what you wanted it to be it yeah. challenged you on all kinds of things to the point where we watched one episode. We watched the first 15 minutes of one episode thinking that there was no sound. Well, there was no sound. The file was fucked. I know, but we thought that that was a Lynchian stylistic point of view. And we were like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. And I was like, well, (laughs) I'm stroking my chin again now, by the way, listener. Oh, you see, this this speaks to, you know, the silence of the night. And uh, And and you're like, no, mate, the file's fucked. No, it's fucked. (laughs) Like, oh, we've got to download this again. Yeah, yeah, you never really know. Okay, well, should we get into this? Yeah, uh, Let's do this, otherwise it's going to be the longest podcast ever. Okay, so we open up, and this is fun. We should also mention that we watched this on the projector, so it was particularly um, aesthetically correct. Oh, it was, was amazing that, um, at the start, because it was it it was perfect. Well, the first thing that you see after the HBO logo, which I still expect to go into the Sex and the City, or maybe Curb Your Enthusiasm, that's also there as well. It starts with the the classic Dave Gibbons uh, yellow Watchman logo, yep. but with flickering 
projection and cigarette burns and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So it was nice to see that we had this little boxy, uh, silent projector. It kind of just, it, it felt right. It was uh, very sort of prescient. But we see a Bass Reeves Black Marshall of Oklahoma short. Uh, and this is basically a, uh, a heroic black figure who's catching and lynching Catching the white criminals. scoundrel. Um, and this is something that's worth pointing out as well, is that lynchings weren't a exclusively white on black crime. No. White people were also lynched by white, by other white people. So, so we see a boy in the the cinema as um, his, we soon learn his mother, very nervously trying to distract him. And, and you can see that she's totally, that's all she's doing. Like he, he's... She's shaking her keys as, at him to keep as him distracted. Kids, as kids do, they are oblivious to that kind of thing. Yeah. They All they care about is being entertained and having fun and like well, it reminds me of the um, shit about that kind of thing it reminds me of the roberto bernini film life is beautiful yeah you know where uh it's it's a, a, a it's a jewish man and his child at a uh in a prison camp mm. and it's him trying to distract his kid away from how awful things are by clowning and i always think of that whenever i think of some anything where you know you're trying to distract your, your child away from something so we see that we're in tulsa in 1921 um, and basically what we're seeing here is the aforementioned little-known uh, Tulsa race massacre mm. that happened. It happened, actually happened over a couple of days at the end of May in um, June, uh, at the, the beginning of June in 1921. And, we're, but- and looking into it as well, um, like I could be very off here, Tulsa for the black community in 1921 was absolutely thriving. Oh yeah, people that were, was where a lot of the resentment came from. Though, was the yeah. fact that they were actually starting people had to properties, businesses. They were earning good money. It was the American dream, they, you know. Yeah, and they didn't like it. Yeah, and and I mean there was, I mean basically what happened was mobs of white residents, um, some of whom had been deputised and given weapons by city officials, mm. attacked black residents and destroyed homes and businesses. This was in the Greenwood um, district, and. Basically, it came about, and this was a really common issue, and it's been lost in time memoriam, but what was a really common set of circumstances where would be when a black man, a young black man, would have allegedly sexually assaulted a white woman, and then there'd be lynchings. Hmm. Now, you know, maybe, who the fuck knows, but I think the general historical consensus is that was an easy reason to just do shit. You know, if you want if you want to push back against the black community, um, then just go into the taverns and start whispering. And oh, did you hear that this happened? Did so, you hear? So did this? Yeah. And basically, things escalated. A, the, I think the first person to get killed was a white person, mm. uh, but I think it was a white person who was killed by a black person who was defending themselves against a large mob of people. Right. And then it just blew up, and there were like aerial attacks, and it was awful. Uh, and there have been reparations made for the family members who've been there, which is something that I think informs this show going forward. We won't mm. get into that too much. Yeah. But they talk about the red ferations or... Red ferations. Uh, and, and, and about... Um, I've got a note about that, actually, about that being compensation for racial injustice, specifically Tulsa. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And well, it's... Well, I, I say specifically. Specifically You mean in real in life, this, you're not talking about the show Specifically now. in this TV show. Tulsa. Yes. Mm. Yeah. But no, but what I was saying though was in real life mm. there there were reparations made for, uh, yes, for the families absolutely. of people who yeah. that happened. And um what I think is interesting again is that the how little 
this was spoken of and what they said was what they said what what history has reflected is how quickly the people of Tulsa in both the black and the white communities stopped talking about this it became mm. this thing that this sort of like I said this original sin this thing mm. that hung over there and they stopped speaking about it and it just got forgotten about mm. you know um which seems incredible that there's just this it's this awful. madness that can happen I mean, I know it's a TV show, but like, I can only imagine that the reality was actually worse than what they show. It's just terrifying. Yeah. And as all, but I mean, not not to trivialise things at all, but it's amazingly filmed as well. Yeah. Like, the, like the way it's actually shot, and the way that how much of it is done, it's done with a low camera because we've like got you're a young pr- protagonist, you know. Mm. And the performances are great, but so basically, we we see that this young boy and his parents weaving their way, handheld cameras and all, through this just mayhem. They put him on a truck with a note. The truck crashes, and we see him find a baby as the only, seemingly the only other survivor. I feel so sorry for his mum and dad when they're, like, trying to be like, yeah, we're right behind you, and, you know, and they know that they're... Yeah, 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 they're yeah. Dying. They're just going to they send him just, off. They're just absolutely going to be yeah. killed. And we see that he has the watch over this boy note. Mm. Uh, and then we go to the present and we've got Crushed Up by Future playing, which is a fucking great tune. And as you mentioned, you've got the the, the title behind him as well. And the way that they I use those, those yellow graphics. It's super ironic that they have that song with a white supremacist in his ute. Yeah. And I, uh, obviously that's intended. Well, yeah, it is. It's like how much of sort of um, black culture mm. uh, and a part of what this show will go on to talk about, and obviously I won't go into specifics, is how black culture's contributions to white culture get forgotten. You know, w- whether that be, you know, the blues musicians that influenced the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and but who weren't allowed um, to, um, you know, well, other things that we'll see, you know, as mm. the show goes forward. Yeah. So we see this guy get pulled over in his ute. We see a police officer in, like, a bizarre kind of yellow mask. It was really weird um, to see. I mean, obviously, the first time I watched this, I, f- I felt exactly the same as what I'm about to say. It wasn't a rewatch thing. But um, it was really weird to see a cop in a mask and it not to be because of COVID. Yeah, you know, that's the point. Like, this show was made in 2019, yeah. so... We saw it before COVID. Yeah. No, I saw it after COVID. It was really weird for me to see... I was mixing it up see, with Fargo when we yeah, watched yeah. it. It was weird for me to see police with masks on for any Identity. other, any other yeah. reason than COVID. Yeah. Um, and I think for generations to come... If they end up watching this, that will get lost a little it, bit. It will be lost in translation because, like, I, I even I look at our kids now, um, and I mean, the situation at the moment in New Zealand is they're coping with the Delta variant. Um, Auckland is in a state of lockdown. We are less lockdown, um, but. You know, it's not good, our borders are closed, all that kind of thing. Um, They are extremely used to um, all adults having masks on wherever they go. Like, that's just life. Um, So 
for them to see someone with a mask on in a TV show is not going to be a big deal to them. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not going to be a scary thing. It'll, it'll add to the conf- yeah. confusion. So we see the guy in the car reaching into a glove box and we see, uh, like, an oily rag, which we will learn momentarily is a Rorschach mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see the cop go back in the car. Uh, and this is the other thing as well that this is prescient about is the idea of police brutality. Yeah. They've got to the point now where the cops are so hated that they have to phone in to get somebody to manually release one of their guns release. because of yeah. the amount of people that they're fucking killed that they shouldn't have. Mm. And again, this is pre, um, you know, pre George Floyd. Floyd. But but at the same time, you know, but I mean, not just George Floyd. It's yeah. so well, yeah, many yeah. other people. I mean, yeah, p- police brutality. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's not a new. I thing. mean, there were so many. Last year, it's just that he is the like. I hate I hate this term, but it kind of works. He's the poster boy for it. Yeah, well, last you know? straw, you know. Mm. And so we, we learn that he makes references to, and this is one of the things that I think is very emblematic of this show, is that they throw terminology at you. Like he says, "Oh, they've got cavalry contraband." Um, you could have read the original Watchmen 30 times and you don't know what the fuck that is, you know. Mm. So you, you really have to kind of keep up and listen. So he's asking for the weapon release, but you get the impression he's got some real bureaucratic pencil-pushing dickhead. Um, and he takes so it's long like, to do it that he gets shot. Do you shot. have this? Yes. Do you have... And he just sounds bored Burr. and like, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the guy then, that, and then it won't release like three times. Yeah. And the guy um, who shoots him throws lettuce through the window. So we then move to the Don Johnson and Francis Fisher characters watching um, an all-black performance of um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Um, And um, we're also introduced to the reflected mask-wearing character played by Tim Blake Nelson. And Tim Blake Nelson, he's one of those people like William Finchner, who's he's one of the great unknown character actors. Mm. Um, He's he's done a lot of... um, He's in Oh Brother, We're Out There, isn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. Mm. He's just one of those kind of great faces. He's done a lot of period. He's done a lot of westerns, like you know, a lot of modern westerns. Um, all I kept thinking is, how the hell can he breathe through that mask? Mm. Because he brings it down right over his his nose. Well, it's like all, and of, mouth all of the everything. all the cavalry people that we see wear the Rorschach masks have got eye holes cut in them. Rorschach never did, but you always got the feeling that his mask was. But I I felt like his mask was skin. Well, it was like, supernatural because cause it moved. Yeah, everything moved. It was it was part of him. And it's funny how both Rorschach and the Tim Blake Nelson character refer to their masks as their face. And I sort of feel like if Rorschach was alive... He'd be that Tim Blake Nelson character. He would be mortified at the way people were behaving in his name. Well, that's the other thing as well. Uh, and I, I'll talk about this more in later episodes that is one of the central conceits is how people interpret words. Yeah. Um, and how some people are like, oh, no, what... what, what you know, you, you what have, he means is I, blah, I mean, blah, blah, blah. The, the, uh, I think Rorschach's journal that was dropped, that was discovered at the end of the original story is almost being used kind in this, kind of like how the Bible gets used mm. and how people can agenderize 100%. Um, it to, to mean... You know, you're homophobic. There's probably something in the Bible that you can find to say that that's cool. Exactly. You know? Yeah. One of the things I want to mention here as well is the um, the score by uh, Trent Reznor and uh, Atticus Ross. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trent Reznor, obviously, uh, from Nine Inch Nails. And uh, also did the third Twin Peaks Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, 
and it's just it's just, it's this great almost kind of slightly. Is it two thousand nineteen as well? No, what's in peace? Yeah, uh, seventeen. Seventeen yeah. was it? Yeah. Um, it's this great kind of almost John Carpentery kind of uh, synthy score. Mm-hmm. Um, but also has the kind of the industrial kind of techno-y elements that he does as well. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things that's great about Trent Reznor is that when, when he works on a score, he, they get him to pick the songs as well because he's a real um, jukebox. Like he knows uh, a lot about music history. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I will say about this show, and this is no spoiler, is there's some... You could create a fucking great playlist of just all of the kind of um, songs mm-hmm. that are in this. Like every episode has one or two great uses of music, not just the stuff that Atticus uh, Ross and Trent Reznor have, have created, but also the the library found, music. Found yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we see Judd, the Don Johnson character, um, uh, goes to see the wife of the officer who's been um, mowed down. And he says, look, you know, did he tell anyone he was the police? So what we're starting to see is very specifically the world building going on. So what we've learned that police have to operate in secrecy. And it really makes sense because one of the things that you always hear in superhero fiction is you have to protect your identity and wear a mask and, you know, have your Peter Parker to your Spider-Man because otherwise people will come for your family. Mm. And we've got to a point now in the world of Watchmen where... Superheroes, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, superheroes have been around at this point now for like sixty years, Mm. so that has just extended itself to the police. Mm. And I think also added, exacerbated by the fact that police have become increasingly, uh, you know, demonised. You know, rightly or wrongly, I don't know Mm. quite, you know, what what that's like in this universe. Mm. But just this idea that being a police officer is so dangerous. And the way that they're presented in later later scenes is they're almost like a secret society. Yeah. You know, we see the cavalry um, having their meetings and chanting and quoting um, Rorschach's journal, like his scripture. Mm. But the police themselves have an almost... um, Masonic kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Um, Very you know, Masonic, actually. That's a good word it. for it. And, um, so what we hear is her giving uh, instructions about eggs, and yeah. we see um, the smiley face, which, of course, can't help but remind us of the comedian. And about um, how you need the whites um, in the eggs to keep the walls from tumbling down. Like, it's so racial. Oh, I hadn't even thought of it like that. Mm. That's a great point. And, and you also see on the TV or here in the background a bit of stuff about um, Dr. Manhattan, um, mm-hmm. who was who was Superman, basically. You know, yeah. that's the, the Superman analogy. So we see, yeah, Angela at the school. She says that she was, um, you know, when she was a little girl in Vietnam before it became a state. Mm-hmm. So, like, the 50, you know. So, there's a really different situation going on with Vietnam. Yeah. Hawaii wasn't the last state, you no. know. It's, uh, um, and then she goes on to be really graphic about um, getting night. shot in the gut um, on what is called White Night. And, and, yeah, the teacher has to stop her getting a bit, like, Intricate. It is interesting though because if I, if, if I was like a you know creative, you know if if I was talented and had power and somebody <laughs> in Hollywood came to me and said right you get to do season two of Watchmen, I'd want to do something in that period between um, the original story and 
2019. Mm. I feel like there's there's a whole world of stuff, and it's interesting because that's we obviously serious. we learned that Robert Redford's president, and that's funny because um, one of the final panels in the original Watchmen, and of and one of the final scenes in the film is them saying because. Nixon has been president for an unnaturally long time. Like, he's still president in the 80s in mm. Watchmen. Yeah. And Watchmen ends with Redford. You know, obviously, they're kind of... it's it's a, The joke is Ronald Reagan, um, you know, mm. a, an RR actor, and then a, a, another RR actor comes in. And you... That's the last thing you hear, really, mm. in the original story. Yeah. So the idea that in this intervening period, Robert Redford has attend, attempted this kind of um, equally ill-fated, I guess, kind of like liberal agenda. Mm. Um, but it's slightly mealy-mouthed, you know? And um, so but what we, we get a key piece of um, the mythology here, which is this idea of White Knight, when basically there was a systematic um, eradication of, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of police officers. Uh, and it, one of the things that I've really enjoyed and I'm looking forward to continuing to enjoy about watching this on a projector is just how much stuff they're back into the frame. Like there's a poster on the background in the classroom where it's like notable presidents and one of them is a picture of, Ronald, of Robert Redford. Mm. And, you know, you, can, you see, you're getting all of these little crumbs. And again, this is something that I loved about Babylon 5 is that, you know, in the first season, when you go back and watch it, you can see people reading newspapers and it's talking about, you know, President Clark gets sick and has had to cancel all these things, and then yeah. several episodes later, you learn that yeah, it's it's just it's it pays rewatching, mm. um, and it assumes that you're going to as well, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So we learn about the there's a, there's, there's or one at the very least you're going to pay attention. Yeah, and there's this one surly little kid in the classroom who asks her if she paid for her business with the Red Federations. Red Federations. Uh, Red Federations. Sorry, um, and when she's in the car with her her son afterwards. You know, she says to him, I love the line, he's not racist, but he's off to a good start, you know. Mm. So it starts to rain squid, which is a bit of a what-the-fuck mm-hmm. moment if, you, if you're not up on your Watchman law. We're introduced- that was the thing that Mike had to just school me about before it happened. Yeah, cause there, and the only reason I did that, I didn't want to be sort of mic-splaining or anything, but I think that that's one of those moments where I think you can start to lose the audience. I, I would have been really like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, I should know what this yeah, is. Yeah, I yeah. feel like I'm not in on the joke, fuck and, this show, and, you know? And I find, I, I struggle with that. Like, if I feel like, if I feel like I'm just being super dumb because... I don't know what's going on or there's some in-joke that is completely inaccessible. Makes you want to disengage. It, it, yeah, it really makes me want yeah, to. And I think, I, think, I think most people are like that as well. Mm. I think that's why I resisted Star Trek for as long as I did. Um, like, like, it's, it's like 50 years of this shit. Yeah, but in its entirety because I'd heard you and your friends talk about it so lovingly and very like, oh, so-and-so, blah, 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 ha, 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 you know, and thinking oh my god what if i don't get the joke or then you start what watching if i don't you, get it and, and it's funny as well because star trek in some ways is one of the most inviting inclusive fandoms in the, you also, can start anywhere so babylon 5 yeah. because and that is my favorite sci-fi ever yeah. but you know i resisted it for so long because i heard uh you've got to pay attention and you know there's like there's twists and don't you don't know what's going to happen and yeah it's like budget to battle that stuff and all this kind of thing and you just feel like it's going to be like a freaking homework 
yeah, like a university course yeah. on start on sci-fi yeah. to try and like penetrate a it. joyless journey into feeling stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, and it's not. It's fucking fun. No, but, it's um, amazing. If any of you want to give Babylon Five a go, give it a go. You I completely give it six out of five. Six out of five. Go for it. So we're introduced <laughs> to. Um, um, Cal, played mm-hmm. by Yaya Abdul Mateen, who uh, who who's now a fucking huge star. It wasn't yeah. like two years ago. I mean, he was like starred in a recent Candyman film, and it's just he's in every. Oh, of, was he in that? He's the main guy he's in it. Candyman, and it's it's one of those things where he's now like, oh, you're in every film being made at the moment. Um, yeah. We see uh, a glimpse of American Hero Story, uh, which is a film about the Minutemen, and the Minutemen were the um, the pre-Watchmen superhero team. So, uh, and basically what, they, what they're playing on here is DC. You had the Justice Society of America in the 40s, mm. and then in the modern age, you had the Justice League of America. And that's and where I think the, the director's ultra cut, or whatever the hell it's called, probably pays a bit You get more of that early stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, and you need that for the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in many ways, they they're more interested in the Minutemen than they yeah. are the Watchmen. Yeah. But um, but yeah. So um, you know w- what we learn is, and these this is obviously meant to be aping those lo- those Ryan Murphy shows. Mm. You know, like American Horror Story and American Crime Story mm. and all of those kind of things. Yeah. It's obviously in that style, and and it's it's a little bit like, you know, that's that's the thing. I think there's a bit of meta commentary going on here as well because. I think that what Damon Lindelof is saying is that's the show that the people who didn't like this version of Watchmen wanted. Mm. You know, the sanitised, sort of just stupid version of it, almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we see a newspaper that says that uh, Adrian Veidt has officially been declared dead. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, a lead character from the original Watchmen. Uh, we see a, a wheelchair using Louis Gossett Jr. Is um, that who it is? yeah. Shit a brick. Iron Eagle, baby. I have not even clocked that. Yeah, yeah. I feel terrible for not realising that. Well, he he is he is aged tremendously. (laughs) Um so but he he asks uh, Angela as she's walking into her cake shop, uh cryptically, do you think I could lift two hundred pounds? Uh this will make sense later, but Mm. uh, at the moment it just seems like a very odd thing to say. Yeah. Um we see her go into a bakery, which is actually kind of like a mini bat cave. Yeah. Uh in a lot of ways. Um, and then we see her go into a trailer park. She belts a dude in the face and chucks him in the trunk whilst Trent Reznor's techno music's playing. Mm. Um, and then we, we see Judd waiting to go in to address the police department whilst they play the 7th Cavalry video. And this is interesting. This is something I didn't catch the first time, where the guy speechifying says, race traitors will cry helpers and we will say no. And that's a, a bastardization of the opening line of dialogue from the original Watchmen from Rorschach's diary, where he's like the whores and the criminals in the streets will look up and say, help me, and I will say no. Mm. So it's like they're doing that thing where they're using the text and bastardizing it bastardizing. for their own sort of agenda. Right, okay. So it's there, it basically it's a manifesto video of the yeah, Seventh yeah. Cavalry. And they have a vote about having an emergency weapon release. And this is where Angela tells the Don Johnson character that there's a somebody in her trunk. 
I love the fact that when we're, you're in Don Johnson's office, and this is the world-building thing, you just see, and I hadn't seen this before, and I think unless you're watching it on a big screen, you wouldn't. Did you see the book that was on his desk? No. It was Under the Hood, which is the autobiography that the original Night Owl wrote in the oh, original really? Watchmen that they reference. Okay. And it's just, just little things like that, yeah. the fact that he would be reading that, that he has an interest in this in yeah. a superhero sort of like mythology. And they said they're going to put him in the pod. And basically what the pod is, this is the Tim Blake Nelson character doing. It felt a lot like the Voight Kampf test from the beginning of Blade Runner. Like, you know, the empathy, empathy 100%. test. 100%. What they learn is, um, and, and it, this is sort of helped by the fact that Angela sneaks the guy off into the room and just beats the shit out of him as well, um, that they are held up at a cattle ranch. So um, the they mobilise. Can I just mention about the fact that just before that there's a scene of them putting lots of cell batteries in a drum yep that seems to be something that they're kind of focused on raises questions doesn't and it? when they realize that that uh people are at said the Ranch are on the way to kick their ass they're a bit like possessive about it yeah um so you know pay attention and they they've Pull up a big old um, machine gun. Um, fortunately, the good guys have um, cow carcasses <laughs> to hide Indeed. behind as well. Yeah, always um, good. But the what we learn, what we, what we see is that the the um, the cavalry, the seventh cavalry, are zealots because they take suicide pills. Yeah. So you know you might disagree with what they say, but you know they put their money where their mouth is, um, and we see, um, and this is where. This is the moment where I realised I liked this show mm. as a fan of The Watchmen, is that when the police have to try and capture them when they take off on a plane, they come up on a vehicle, which is kind of a variation on the Archimedes, the Night Owl's ship. And of course it would be. I thought that was Night Owl's ship. Uh, well, no, I think it's just, I think, well, maybe it is. I don't know. I'd always just assumed that they had just taken that technology and that, like, oh, every I police just, force are in America. I just assumed it was Yeah, maybe, the maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. But, but the fact that, that the show does have things from the original story, mm. but it's, it uses them when they would. Because at the end of the day, you know, think about it. If you've got, um, you know, the Night Owl, particularly the second one, who's got all of his technology and superheroes are outlawed and they all get you know either go on the run or go to jail or get brought into you know the mm. CIA or do whatever um it's not like that technology doesn't exist of course that's going to get brought in because that's so much more technologically advanced than like a helicopter or anything that we had in 1985 when the original story was set yeah so you know that is going to find its way into common use mm. you know and it's little moments like that where you're like, oh yeah, this is this is Watchmen, you know. And one of the things I also love about this is that when it crashes and it comes out and it cra and uh, Angela runs up to it and thinks, shit, you know, Judd's dead, and he comes out the top, and she's just like, what the fuck, like holy shit, and they're just laughing. That's such a real moment. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's such a kind of a what the fuck was all that about? You know, and the way that they do it, it's such a genuine moment of bonding. Yeah. Um, that wherever these characters go, 
you understand who they are in relation to each in, other, you know. And kind of a good signifier that they've been in this situation before. Yeah. Um, and kind of lived to see the end of it. So uh, uh, they're having a giggle about yeah. it. And this is again. And this is a good a point as any to just say that Regina King is amazing. Oh, I mean, my con- God, I mean, considering she's so that, good. considering that she's you know had to slum it playing like you know the HR officer in Big Bang Theory. Yeah, and like you know, and nothing against that. We love that show, but um, that is, I mean, you know, it's a pile of shite when it comes to like proper acting and drama. Well, well, no, and just, all just, that kind I mean, no, but like, just it doesn't, screen, screen, doesn't utilise her. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking from a screen time and pay perspective. You know, this is an actress who. You know, has now gone on. I mean, she won the Emmy for this, mm. and this has helped her I'm career. I'm so pleased about um, that. But, but at the time, this was um, a platform performance, and you know, she yeah. fucking brings it. You know, she, she nailed it. And um, it's amazing. So we see. We then cut over to a Lord of the Manor character um, mm-hmm. at his castle. Um, it's Jeremy Irons. Is he just me, or is there something? I've always found there to be something inherently creepy about Jeremy Irons. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, he looks like somebody... He looks like a cannibal. He looks like some... I can imagine him, like... You know the bit, the famous bit in um, Silence of the Lambs, where he talks about, like, you know, father beans and a mm. nice glass of Chianti? You know, the, mm. the, I can totally um, yeah. imagine Jeremy Irons doing that. And he just has shit heel written all over well, him. He, there's, there's something just vaguely sort of emotionally disengaged and kind of mm. just naturally sociopathic yeah. about him. And that could just be his acting style. I mean, it's funny. I went to a thing at the Symphony Hall in Birmingham um, that was – it was Mark Kermode interviewing him. And there was an orchestra there, obviously, being the Symphony Hall – and they would play music from films that he'd been in. Yeah. And he would talk about them and be interviewed. And even then, he looked like, yeah, you're going to go and you're going to fucking go and eat somebody, aren't you, after this? There's just something it's just in, <laughs> inherently creepy about the guy. And this is a great kind of what the fuck sequence. And we'll, you know, and uh, re- an element of the story that reveals itself. And I kind of feel, from a non spoiler perspective, don't know how much to say about it. I mean, I, I think, I think. On the on uh, on the end credits, it names his character, but let's just, I guess, look at what's presented on screen. He's got servants. We're told that it's an anniversary. Um, he's given a cake and he's given a watch, a pocket watch, mm. uh, and he tells his servants that he's writing a play called The Watchmaker's Son, which, if you know your Watchmen canon, you know must be John Osterman. Mm. Because uh, he was the watchmaker's son, you know. I I just don't think we should say too much about him. Yeah. Um. Nothing more. No. Then it cuts to, and this is interesting because it cuts to um, Judd and his wife having Cal and Angela and their family over, and I noticed that the music that's playing in the background is uh, unforgettable, mm. and that's the only direct reference to the Zack Snyder film mm. because the whole first five minutes of that film is the slow motion fight sequence between Vite and the comedian as the comedian's murdered with Unforgettable by Nat King Cole playing in the background. And that's, I don't think, referenced in the comic and that's a very iconic moment from the film. So it's nice to see that they're actually... And that's the first thing that happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But it's, it's the fact that they're... they're 
doffing their cap mm. to to the film because Zack Snyder takes a lot of shit and he's taken a lot of shit for me but that his Watchmen movie is fucking great and I, mm. he, I, I can't take that away from him uh, we see Judd sneak off for a cheeky snifter of coke yeah. and I think it says a lot about him and Angela's relationship that she tipped him off yeah, and she doesn't judge him. She's just like, no, yeah, you know, we've got like, we've got hard lives. Well, we all do what we can to get by. You know, yeah. Um, it's all about surviving the times, and if that's the way he survives, then all good. Mm. He doesn't have like quote marks a problem. They've got difficult jobs, mm. and they're not judging each other. Yeah. Is what what's going on there? Yeah, you do whatever you need to do to get through. Yeah, there's a nice moment when Judd starts singing. Uh, I think it's interesting as well that Cal didn't know about the whole getting out of going to Black Oklahoma subterfuge. Did you notice that the clock starts ticking when he's in the, singing? In the soundtrack and it carries mm. on as well. Yeah. TikTok as well. And that's and that, that that is like the eggs and like the yellow and like all of these uh, and like the sort of typographical elements. This is something that's fundamentally aesthetically part of Watchmen. Like in Watchmen, you've got... Um, the um oh, what do you call it the the countdown clock mm. you know to the yeah. nuclear war it's like the version of defcon 5 you obviously you've got um the that dr manhattan when he was a human his father was a watchmaker so mm. you've got the tiktok you've got when when dr manhattan goes to mars and he creates that kingdom for himself it's all made of cogs and all this kind of stuff so it's just i don't think it specifically means anything it's just makes sense it's part of the fabric yeah. of the of the yeah. of the universe Judd gets a call from hospital as I say when he's driving along you get the radio playing and it's like everything is world building it's very dense um, his tyres get blown out somebody throws has thrown some razor strips across the, the street um, we see Angela gets a call from somebody who seems very interested in her lineage Asking her, you know, if she is the granddaughter of X, Y, Z, yeah, uh, and tells her to come without a mask. So obviously, this person knows that she's Who a police she officer, yeah. And so we see um, a spotlight being shown on Angela when she turns up, and we see the uh, aforementioned Louis Gossett Jr. character in a wheelchair. You see the uh, the note that the boy had mm-hmm. on the lap of Louis Gossett Jr. And you know what? I don't know if I spotted that. I did. For seeing it before. I did. Because um, it really does... The camera just pans past it. It doesn't linger. You did. I'm sure you did, because I did. And I'm I'm sure you and I talked about it. Really? Yeah. I have no memory of that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we get the... Um, um, the re- oh, no, go on. Sorry. Um, just one thing I wanted to note that I hadn't noticed the first time around is when they're doing that panning around... Um, specifically going from Lewis Gossett Jr. in the wheelchair with the note up to the rope, around, down to Don Johnson, down. Um, There's some old-time piano as it goes around that was shown, that that was played in the movie theatre at the start. Yeah, when 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 Mm. Bass was lynching the white man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And um, then we get we get the reprise of um, the, the I song. just thought it was lovely how they like tied that in. Yeah, and that's the other thing as well. Is is, is that this is an ongoing storyline, but every episode of this show has its own identity. 
Mm. And I think that's a really nice touch. But we get the reprise of um, the song from Oklahoma, uh, and we end with the lyric, it's summer and we are running out of ice, mm. which basically means um, tensions are running high. You yeah. Know? Uh, and I think it's nice that the um, the episode ends with the name of the episode that we saw at the beginning. It gives it that little chef's kiss kind of uh, Absolutely. Um, punchline. But um, yeah. Um, it's it's getting a little bit late here in New Zealand, so maybe we won't do a spoiler really section is. this week. We've had both children come out to like interrupt us. So sum up your thoughts, Hannah. Loved it. Um, eight and a half out of ten. I'd probably only not give it more because I'm waiting for what's to come. Yeah, it's just great filmmaking. It's really confident. It's not pretentious. There's nothing self conscious about it. It's telling the story it wants to tell in the way it wants to tell it. And I think that there's enough stuff in there to keep you compelled, mm. even if you're not noticing the subtle stuff that you might only notice when you watch it a second time. But the fact that we're watching it a second time, you know, yeah. says a lot. And I love this universe. I love the comic. I love the movie. It's amazing. Um, there's been sequel comics that DC have done as well. And it's just, there's something about it that's really special mm. and really, it's so hard to define. I mean, that's why I struggle so much talking about the fact that and this is, this is something that I really hope to kind of refine and understand as we move forward, that there's something just sort of stylistically intrinsic about the comic book that this show captures that I can't, I feel, but I can't mm. explain. And I want to figure that out, you know, yeah. but it's definitely there. And uh, it's great stuff, and I look forward to seeing the next one. So we will be back to talk about episode two. Uh, could you bring up the details just whilst I do a little bit of Absolutely. procrastination? Yeah. of um of Watchmen and um, in the meantime just a quick reminder to go over to wearepodsyndicate.com to check out all of the other Pod Syndicate podcasts including Shinstroker vs. Punter the Iron Sequel his film her movie Film Bastards and Entertainment Landfill and also just a quick reminder that we are available for conversation on social media namely Twitter and Instagram at rewatchproj and we would appreciate your email uh, at the uh, uh sorry not there's no the at rewatch project podcast at gmail.com uh particularly if you uh have just started listening to the show because you are interested in watchmen go and do that but also you know hell fucking hell if you have watched watchmen before come on shield uh, go and watch Ace of the shield um just go and check it out but uh but yes and also a quick reminder that we are on youtube as well so uh go and give and us likes and follows there please anyone that has um feedback to us already and said oh a sorbet would be a great idea tell us what you think yeah and the other thing is as well is that as we start to move through different franchises don't feel like you can't feedback on other stuff so if you've got feedback on one of our agents of shield episodes Mm. um go for it send it we'll include it on this show and in the Mm. same way that in the future when we've finished Watchmen and we've moved back onto Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you want to comment on this, then you're absolutely able to do that. We're, we're, we're very, Equal very opportunists. Absolutely. Okay, so what are we talking about next time, Hannah? Okay, so episode two of season one is called Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Nice. Um, it is directed again by Nicole Castle. 
um, and written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse. Ah, uh, yes. Brother of Carlton Cuse, who we worked with on Lost, I believe. Okay. Um, okay. Um, synopsis says, as Angela re- relives haunting memories of an attack on her family, she detains a mysterious man who claims responsibility for Tulsa's most recent murder. An original play is performed for an audience of one. Mm. Mm-hmm. Enigmatic. Okay, so that's us. Um, for this week. Good night, all. But it's summer and we're running out of ice. This podcast is part of the Pod Syndicate family. For more criminally compelling shows, articles, and conversations, head to wearepodsyndicate.com.